0: This is the fifth talk in a series of talks on the seven virtues, titled Gratitude, recorded March tenth, 1996, at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon.
1: So this morning, we're going to be speaking about the virtue of gratitude, which is the fifth in a series of talks of the seven virtues uh, of courage, humility, justice, patience, gratitude, mercy, and joy. And uh, gratitude is associated with the fifth stage of the spiritual path, There being seven stages, and each virtue uh, being associated with one of the stages. Um, The fifth stage is the illumination of the heart. And as I said the last time we talked about a virtue, uh, the virtue of patience is associated with the stage of the purification of the mind and heart, which is the most arduous stage perhaps for most people on a spiritual path and, and usually the longest. That's the stage where you really dig in and you do your practices, your meditation practices and you're working with precepts and often it doesn't seem like you're getting anywhere and so forth and so on. So you really need patience uh, for that stage. But uh, then at some point, everything starts to turn around a little bit. Now, these stages, they tend to overlap and so forth, so don't get carried away with uh, thinking that these are clear-cut demarcations. This really helps us to talk about it more than anything else. But it's true. After a certain period of uh, intense practice, things start to change. Uh, The old world of solid objects and isolated selves that we normally experience starts to crack open a little bit. The boundaries of the self start to dissolve, or there's a sense of a dissolving. There are moments of insight. There can be visions. One can experience bliss, and one can experience tremendous beauty that one never noticed before in the world. All the forms of the world start to become transparent to this divine reality that is their ground and their source. So this stage what I call the illumination of the heart, because these experiences start to happen, it tends to be a very joyous stage. And so uh, gratitude is a natural response to it. Uh, Lali Shwari, who is a great Kashmir saint of 14th century, I believe, uh, she sort of sums up the mood of this in a little poem here. Everything has become new for me. My mind is new. The moon is new. The sun is new. The whole world appears fresh and new, as if rinsed with water. Since I washed my mind and body with a soap of mantra, I have become like new. I am transformed. So mantra was her major practice, obviously, there, mm-hmm. and that was her stage of purification when she was doing this mantra practice, and then things start to change for her. But, as with all the virtues... You don't have to wait for this fifth stage uh, to start cultivating gratitude. The Gratitude starts to come easily and naturally in this stage, but this is something you want to really start to cultivate from the very beginning, as with all the other virtues. Gratitude is really perhaps the oldest virtue, and we might say gratitude is perhaps the oldest uh, principle of a spiritual path. And I want to read you something here from the um, Seneca Native American tradition. And this is a Thanksgiving ceremony of the Senecas. And it's quite a long ceremony. And the heart of the ceremony is a recounting of the whole story of creation from the very beginning, how the Creator created all these things. And all the way through in this recounting, the person who's giving this address, this uh, story of the cosmology, keeps saying, and so we're grateful for this, and we're grateful for that. So the whole story is really a expression of gratitude. And then it ends with this. And now this is what our Creator did. He decided, I myself shall continue to dwell above the sky, and that is where those on Earth will end their thanksgiving. They will simply continue to have gratitude for everything they see that I created on the Earth. <laughs> and for everything they see that is growing. That is what he intended. The people moving about on the earth will have love. They will simply be thankful. They will begin on the earth giving thanks for all they see. They will carry it upward, ending where I dwell. So you might say this is a description of the Seneca path. It's all about giving thanks, and it begins here on earth, it begins in the world of your own immediate experience and learning to be grateful. And then, as the, uh, th- they put it here, to carry this gratitude beyond the world of form and ultimately back to the source, to the creator. So, what is the nature of gratitude? All the virtues are transformative. When you really start to practice them and really find ways to practice them in your life, they transform your experience, your immediate experience, in a very practical way. A lot of people acknowledge the value of virtues, and they sort of pay lip service to them. They say, oh, yes, uh, you know, patience is good, and, and to have gratitude is good, and all these things are good. And then they have no way of actually practicing in their lives, so they don't really mean much in their lives. But really, that's what their purpose is. Their function is to transform your experience. And gratitude is particularly powerful because it transforms suffering into joy. And it does this by changing our attitude towards whatever arises at any level of existence. It works by a shift in perspective, by seeing things in a new light. So, how would we actually go about practicing this? How would we actually uh, manifest this in our lives? Well, gratitude is etymologically related to words like a grace, gratis, you know, a gratuity, a gift you leave for a waiter or waitress. Uh, it's like a favor. It has this idea of something that's freely given, that's not earned or deserved or anything like that. And so when someone gives us a gift, our natural response is usually to be grateful. And it's the opposite of taking things for granted, when we simply take our life for granted, we don't have any gratitude for it. We don't have any awareness that there's anything that's a a grace in here. And it's uh, also the opposite of this peculiar delusion that we suffer from, that we deserve things. Because when you feel like you deserve things, and when you get them, it's not a gift. It's your right. You got them. When we deserve things, or when we feel that we deserve things, that sense of, I deserve, whatever it is, automatically sets you up for suffering. If you feel you have a right to something and you deserve it, then, when you don't get it, you're going to be resentful, disappointed, uh, outraged, maybe. Uh, Most people, if this happens a lot, start to fall into a uh, a rut of self-pity it's a major, major form of suffering in most people's lives, really. But it comes from this uh, initial attitude that you deserve things. So gratitude begins with the understanding that in reality, everything, everything is a gift. Everything is a grace. We may have As a social fiction, and a necessary, by the way, social fiction, uh, concepts of ownership and so forth, they are the rules by which we play the social game. But in reality, fundamentally, we don't own anything, we don't (coughs) deserve anything, everything is a gift. And we can start to uh, discover this truth by simply pondering our own lives and different uh, aspects of our lives so for instance if we begin with the uh, most primitive of our experiences and that is our biological existence just the body being embodied for many people the body is a major cause of suffering and for lots of reasons some people don't like the way the body looks so every time they look in the mirror they're unhappy it's a little suffering you look in the mirror and you say oh, Look at that face! I wish I, you know, looked like Rock Hudson or somebody. Why did I get a face like this? <laughs> we don't like the fact that our body uh, gets sick and grows old. You know, you get up in the morning, there's a little ache here, there in your back. You start to notice, and the little lines start to show up here. You know, the teeth start to yellow, and they have problems with your gums and all sorts of things. Look at that! <laughs> yeah, these are familiar things, right? We don't like that about our bodies. We try to push that away. We try not to think about it. Or we spend a lot of money on various cosmetics and stuff to get the wrinkles out of our face. Or uh, Grecian formula, now it's for men being promoted. You know, get rid of the gray and you'll look much younger. And now they have it for the beards and the mustache and uh, all sorts of products to do this. And getting sick. Uh, most people, when they get sick, they really are annoyed, at least. I mean, just little sickness, colds and and so forth. And right away, they start to hunt for remedies. It's wonderful being around here in the wintertime when the flu comes and stuff, and all the remedies that are passed back and forth, you know, this sort of tea or, you know, eats these raw sprouts or whatever. And, you know, uh, it's it's really fascinating. And then, of course, there are major illnesses, which we really don't like, you know, cancer and things like that. So this is a great source of suffering to us. Little aggravations by getting a cold and so forth, but also major fears about getting major illnesses. And then finally, we don't like this fundamental fact of the body that it's going to be taken away from us in death. That we really don't like. And our usual attitude is just not to ever think about it or to think about it as little as possible to turn away from But when we do think about it, or when we have a brush with death, or or someone that we know dies, that we can't uh, avoid this, it usually causes uh, anxiety, if not fear, if not outright terror. So this is, uh, again, a major source of suffering here, is simply uh, our attitude about our biological existence. And what is our attitude? We think we own our bodies. This is why we resent these things that come along, the sickness, the fact that it isn't perfect looking, and all that. And what we have to do is ask, is this true? In what way do we own our bodies? What does that mean that we own our bodies? I mean, for instance, birth. How did we get born? Did we deserve to be born? Do we do anything to get born? Do we earn this human birth? In Western traditions, our human birth is a total gift from God, a total grace. Did absolutely nothing to earn it, deserve it, or anything. You're here, that's all. You have no idea why you're here. Somebody just gave this to you. The East is a little more complicated. In some sense, you do have a a certain say in why you are here in this birth. In the East, there's the theory of karma, and the theory of karma is that you are now have this precious human birth because of good deeds uh, that you did in the past. And so, in a certain sense, you were partly responsible for that. But, in the theory of karma, the individual has no beginning, so just the, the very fact of being is a total uh, grace. And also, they're very uh, aware and uh, remind you over and over again in Eastern traditions that even though it's true that what you do, good deeds or bad deeds, uh, determines what's going to happen in the future, that there are consequences for your actions, uh, they also are very cognizant of the fact that all along the way, people have helped you. And there's tremendous emphasis, for instance, in the Buddhist tradition about being grateful to all beings and the way they put it is because uh, time is beginningless and there are all these beings and so everybody gets recycled over and over in all sorts of forms that every being at one time was your mother who gave you birth, took care of you, raised you. Now, again, you don't have to necessarily subscribe to this as a literal description of physical reality. The intent and the point here, though, is this uh, sense of this interconnection that we cannot exist without each other. And the whole purpose of this teaching is gratitude, to be grateful of fact. So just because there is this uh, law of consequences running through Eastern traditions doesn't mean that anybody actually, in that sense, deserve to be here or owns anything. In fact, this human birth is very, very rare in Eastern traditions. and something that Westerners forget. They think, oh, well, okay, I'm just going to be reborn. I'll probably be reborn the son or daughter of a millionaire next time. I'll be better off, you know. (laughs) And actually, uh, in Eastern traditions, there are six realms through which you cycle through hell realms as well as God realms and animal realms. And it's, uh, unless you've led an exceptionally wise life, chances are you are not going to be a human being for a long, long time again. So this is a very precious opportunity in the Eastern traditions. Then we can consider how the body functions. And just again, we're trying to see in what sense we own our bodies or, or, or even control them. the heart beats. You beat your heart Our uh, nerves transmit. Messages, at least that's the neurological description. Messengers running back and forth there, you know, riding their little nerve bikes, peddling back and forth, <laughs> delivering messages. That's true. The stomach digests. All these enzymes go to work and they're chomping up your food, you know, and they pass it on down into your bowels. And I don't know what they do down there. They grind it up some more. And, you know, uh, all this stuff is going on. Cells reproducing in your body, you know, uh, the oxygen circulating through your blood. I mean, all uh, the little biological miracles that happen in your body. I mean, there's a tremendously complex system of functioning. And how much of it do you do at all? Think about that. How much of it has anything to do with really you, or who you think you are anyway? Very mysterious. There's some mystery living your body almost you know uh, a much more realistic way to think about it is your body is on loan to you it's like a car that's been given to you and not only a car that's been given to you a chauffeur driven car where somebody else is doing most of the driving you're just sort of sitting in the back seat occasionally you get to say turn left at the corner there you know but you're not really doing any of this stuff right so uh, when we consider this the the truth of the situation the reality of the situation uh, we see that this uh, possessiveness about the body, this uh, sense that we own it, uh, is actually unrealistic. It's much more like someone gave you a car, for instance, and said, uh, oh, maybe a nice Ferrari if you have a you know nice body, and said, here, I don't use this for a while, why don't you use it? I'm going to ask for it back eventually, I don't know when I'll be back in town, but in the meantime, you use it, you know. Now, supposing you're in that situation, well, if you start to drive this Ferrari, and at first you think it's great and all that, and then you start to, uh, first of all, maybe something goes wrong, you notice the carburetor sputtering a little bit, you take it in, and you have to get it fixed, and then you're resentful because the owner gave you this car with a bum carburetor, and you have to fix it, right, you know? Uh, and then maybe after a while you drive it, you get used to it, and then you start remembering someday the owner is going to come back for this. And you start resenting the fact this owner is going to show up one day and he's going to ask for it back. You can see how this will generate tremendous suffering. However, if you take the attitude of being grateful, you realize this is a gift. Somebody gave you a Ferrari to drive around for a while, and every moment you have it, you're grateful to the mystery that gave it to you then you won't experience that suffering. It's as simple as that. It's really that change of attitude about your own body. And notice, it comes from not just some sort of positive thinking, it comes from a deep pondering about what is the truth about your body, your relationship to your body. And if you, and that's part of the practice here, to really ponder that, to observe your body, and see in what sense is it really yours, and in what sense is it a kind of miracle that just happens. Then we can consider our economic and social position, our status in society. Uh, A great source of suffering for many people is they resent the fact that they don't have more, that they lack some riches, some possessions, something like that, especially when they compare themselves to other people. They get uh, very jealous uh, often, and this comes from uh, really, again, an unrealistic view of the situation. They have a very narrow, self-centered perspective. They see themselves in the center of the universe, and then they compare themselves to what's in their immediate environment. As I said, I was in Hollywood. I literally knew millionaires who were very jealous and envious of billionaires. I'm serious. I knew people who had more money than they knew what to do with, and they'd read in the Hollywood trade paper, somebody else got this multi-million dollar deal, and they'd be really envious. Astonishing. So the irony is that uh, even if you have lots of riches, if you have this attitude towards them that you don't have enough, it spoils your enjoyment of them. It literally spoils it for you. There's nothing to do with how much you have here, but if you watch closely, it's your attitude. If you're always comparing yourself to somebody who has more, you're always going to be suffering. So, again, what is our reality? The antidote to this is to consider our actual situation. And particularly for people on this side, it's quite astonishing at how much suffering people uh, uh, generate for themselves over possessions when you consider what our position is in relation to the rest of the world. Uh, let me tell you a little personal story that illustrates this very well. Last fall, my mother died. She'd been living in Mexico And my brother and I went down there uh, to settle her affairs and and so forth. And she had had this maid who was just a a real gem. She not only took care of my mother night and day, seven days a week, she was uh, just a very loving, warm person. She really loved my mother. She really loved to take care of her. And so my mother left her uh, $1,000, and plus uh, the Mexican laws require a maid gets paid a certain amount for every day they worked, and then they at the end of their termination of their employment, they get a lump sum based on this. So she got a little over another $1,000, so she ended up with a little over $2,000. For a Mexican maid, this is uh, quite a large sum of money. So we settled this at the consulate, the little American consulate there. We took her there, my brother and I, and then she had to sign some papers acknowledging she had uh, received this money and whatnot. And then uh, we gave her the, uh, the checks right there. And then afterwards, we're uh, walking out, and we were a little bit worried about this woman walking around with $2,000. Know, these were like cashier kinds of checks. And my brother said to her, well, Dolores, shall we um, go to your bank? And she laughed and said, Oh, senora, I don't have a bank. I don't have any dinero, no money. She doesn't have a bank account. I mean, not even a simple checking account. How many people here do not have a bank account in this room? Raise your hand.
0: <laughs>
1: ah, not one person's room does not have a bank account. She laughed. She thought it was a big joke that we were saying, <laughs> let's go to your bank. Yeah.
0: <laughs>
1: to, to give you just the end of the story, we took her up to uh, the bank that my mother had been using and we set her up with a big account. And actually, it's very nice down there. Right now, the interest rates are very high. It's something like 42% per month. So, yeah. What? Yes, Wow. That's right. I said, you're going to be richer. You're going to make more money than me. It's also very risky, though, you know. But in any case, it just, it shows this narrowness of our perspective. Actually, Dolores, compared to the rest of the world, is quite well off, truly speaking. Uh, here are just a few little facts and figures to remind you. I know most of you have probably read statistics like this before, but we live in a society here that is 30% of the world's population and it consumes 88% of the world's wealth. That means 70% of the world's population consumes 12%. You just sort of think about that for a minute, translating what that means in terms of possessions and so forth. uh in the world today, 11 uh, children under 5 die every minute. Most of those deaths are from malnutrition or malnutrition-related diseases. In other words, they would be quite preventable with a little just basic nutrition. This is not in our immediate experience, you see. I know some people here have lost children. How many people have had a child die? Yeah, very painful experience, isn't it? Imagine that five out of eight of your children died. Imagine going through that five times in a lifetime. Most people in the world, their diet consists of rice and beans and some vegetables. Meat is a luxury. Most people in the world don't get meat more than once a month. And most people in the world uh, basically eat one good meal a day, one main meal a day. Now, if you think about how much Suffering, uh, people go through in this country over food. It's too much. It's not enough. It's too greasy. It's too much fat. It's Da da uh, Think about it. Uh, going to the supermarket, looking over the vegetables. So these tomatoes have a little, you know, spot on them. They don't look so good. These beans are a little, you know. If you look at the larger perspective, it's an absolute miracle the amount of food that's available in this society. There are some people in the society, by the way, who, you know, are below the, what, good nutritional level. But by and large, we're overflowing with food. Now, the point here is not to be guilty. The point here is to, is to really consider the reality and to see the larger perspective. So when you go down to your supermarket, you don't walk in and look at the vegetables and turn up your nose. You walk in and say, my God, look at this bins and bins of uh, vegetables I can afford. (laughs) Do you see how relative these things are? This is the really the important thing. And it's really about uh, plugging into that larger reality that we are a part of, that's beyond our little circle of experience. When we really recognize that, that starts to automatically shift our attitude about things. Now, look around this room. In Eugene, this is considered a modest house, I would say. It's not a luxurious house. Uh, and would you mind flicking on and off that light there? Incredible, isn't it? <laughs> the light. I mean, uh, this flip of a finger. Mm. Uh, well, there's not, we took the phone out for the meeting. There's usually a phone sitting on that table. If I want to call Anne, she lives across town, I pick up the phone and I call her. How long would it take me to walk to your house, do you suppose? How many miles away do you live, do you think? I think about five miles. Five miles. So uh, two hours, maybe. But now I just pick up the phone and call, right? We also, what's not in here, we have a TV with a VCR. <laughs> yes, it's amazing, isn't it? You know, we get a little bored, you know, run down to the video store, get a video, pop it in. That takes care of that. This is a, a stereo. It's not one of the great high-fidelity stereo systems of all time, but yeah, you want to hear a little Mozart, some rock and roll, whatever you want to hear. we got a drawer full of tapes there. Just, you know, throw it on. No, I'm serious. Amazing, isn't it? In the wintertime, I get cold easy. Uh, in the wintertime, I don't have to go out a mile or two or three from my house and forage in the forest and come back with a backload of firewood to keep warm. Or go out on the prairie and pick up buffalo dung. See, there's a little button over here. I, I just flick this little button. The whole house heats up, right? And Jennifer's more cold-blooded. Than me, she comes and she flicks the button down. I come and flick it back up, <laughs> up and down all winter long. Somewhere, somewhere we we get we're happy between this you know this variation of five or ten degrees. Amazing, isn't it? No, it's true. I go uh, walk into this kitchen there there's a stove. I want to make some tea. I flip another uh, button, put a little kettle on, and five minutes later, the water's boiling. I don't have to uh, uh, make a fire in the fireplace and, and hang a pot and swing it over it and all that. This refrigerator, I open the refrigerator, food's almost falling out, literally. Uh, right now, the refrigerator is so stuffed, it's almost falling out. And there's some stuff I'm going to have to throw out in there. There's some leftover tofu pate and whatnot. <coughs> You see, when you look at it in terms of the uh, larger picture and the the real picture, the reality, uh, I'm a rich man. I am serious about this. I am a rich man. I am incredibly rich. So the next time you get into your car, maybe you don't have the nicest car in the world. I have a nice Datsun over there. It's it's only 20 years old. You get in your car and you drive down the street and you see some uh, Mercedes pass you by. Remember this. You have a choice. You can look at your car and say, oh, I wish I had a Mercedes. Like, Look how beautiful it is and this and that. Or you can say, my God, I've got a car. How many people in the world have a car? It's that shift of attitude. A shift from a self-centered possessiveness, a sense that I deserve, uh, I have a right to, to the recognition of the reality of the fact that this stuff is all quite miraculous. You may have worked hard and you may have earned some of the money with, with which you bought things, but you did nothing to be born in America, in this society. Absolutely nothing. You could have been born as a peasant on the Yangtze River. And uh, yeah, a peasant on the Yangtze River works three times as hard as most of you do, and a car is not not even dreamable. A bicycle, would, a Yangtze peasant would dream about. So really considering your life, considering your circumstances, considering your situation, if you do that, if you face the realities of the world in your situation, and it will start to call forth gratitude. I have to say one last thing. As a Vietnam vet, We in this society exist in a world that is awash with war. We live on a precarious little island of peace. The reason we live here is because America is the superpower, because we are militarily so powerful. We have not experienced war on this soil for 150 years since the Civil War. There's been no war on this soil. This is not the case with most countries and most people in the world. Most countries and most people at least sometime have experienced the horrors of war on their soil, the ravages of war, not just being in the army. I mean, armies coming through and burning their villages and all that. And we have no appreciation, really, of something that is present with us all the time that is so incredibly precious, and that is peace. If we had any sense of how lucky we are to be at peace, I tell you, you'd get up every morning and kiss the ground. It's something to be grateful for just all the time during the day. And I must say, as I have an advantage over you because I am a Vietnam vet. I drive up the Willamette Valley in the evening when the sun's that you know, magic hour and the cattle and the sheep are just grazing and all that. I turn to Jennifer and I say, this is peace. This, I mean, it's just, it's amazing. Just amazing. So something else, when you stop to consider, when you turn on the television and see what goes on in Bosnia or Rwanda or places like that, remember it and, and let it permeate your life. One of the reasons we don't appreciate the pieces we don't want to think about the war. Well, if you're not willing to face reality, you won't be grateful for what you do have. Seriously. Okay. Then, Let's consider our particular situation in terms of spiritual practices and teachings. Most spiritual seekers, uh, after the initial excitement of being on a spiritual path wears off, get quite complacent, frankly. They start to take the teachings and the practices for granted. And complacency doesn't necessarily cause a lot of suffering, but it certainly saps your enthusiasm for the practices and sapping your enthusiasm cuts you off from the, the insights that can bring about an end to suffering forever. All this suffering. So it's really a, um, uh, a very petty kind of obstacle in some way, but it comes from this failure to recognize how precious the teachings and practices are. If we remember... How, first of all, rare it is in this world to even be exposed to mystical teachings. A lot of people are exposed to religious teachings and dogmas and, and grown up that way. But to be exposed to a teaching that says you yourself can become free of suffering and that gives you practices to uh, try out and suggestions and so forth. This is really quite rare. Most people never even heard of this. To them, religion is either you just believe it or you don't. And if you believe it, after you die, you'll go to heaven, you'll get rewarded. Or if you find it hard to believe, then you've got nothing except a a really bankrupt kind of materialism. So just to be exposed to these kinds of teachings is a precious opportunity. And then even if people are exposed to these kinds of teachings in the world, historically and today, they don't always have an opportunity to practice, or their opportunities are very limited. For instance, one of the things that we fail to appreciate is the fact we're literate. Many people in the world today are not literate. We have a library in there of 27,000 books. (laughs) Many people in the world, it doesn't do them any good, even if they had available a library of 27,000 books, because they can't read them. De- hundred. Twenty-seven hmm? hundred. Yeah. Excuse me. I'm, I'm, I'm a dreamer. <laughs> You're right. Twenty-seven hundred books.
0: <laughs> At that point, it, it doesn't matter.
1: Exactly right. Thank you. That's just what I was going to say. If you can't read, it doesn't matter. Twenty-seven books, 27,000 books. whatever is this about? If we consider that fact, then somebody who uh, who is illiterate can't just, whenever they feel like it, pick up a book for a little inspiration or to see what did the teacher say about that practice and pick up the book and get a little adjustment. So it's a tremendous uh, advantage just to be literate in the world. Then, uh, it's, it's hard in this culture to find time for meditation, but believe me, if you were a peasant on the Yangtze River, it would be even harder. Most people in this world uh, literally work from sunrise to sunset, at least a good part of the year, and then have uh, enormous family responsibilities, you know, six, seven, eight, nine kids. So to have the time to meditate is uh, very precious. And then most people in the world don't have the resources to do things like travel and go on retreats. How many people here have traveled to like some conference to hear some spiritual teachings or something like that? Yeah. Well, most of you in this room. How many people have gone on retreat? Yeah, most of you in this room. Most people in the world certainly don't have the resources, financial or otherwise, to take time off to go travel, to go to conference here and there and so forth, and to go on retreat. So we are very fortunate to be in this situation. And then, finally, most people in the world don't live near a competent teacher, which is very important on a path. And in our society, at this particular time in our society, we have an embarrassment of riches when it comes to teachers. For one reason or another, teachers have flocked to us from all over the world, Hindu teachers, Buddhist teachers, Sufi teachers. Most of you, if you want to, could go find a teacher from uh, any of the great traditions. And yet, we still take it all for granted, or very quickly take it all for granted. We read in the local newspaper that uh, oh, some lamas come and is giving a talk on compassion at the Unitarian Church, and we said, oh, there's another lama talking about compassion.
0: <laughs>
1: you know, I think I'll go see a good movie tonight. <laughs> Now, I must tell you, I've heard the talk on compassion. I don't rush off to hear the Lama talking about compassion. But our attitude about it is this attitude of dismissing it, you know, of taking for granted. Instead of thinking, oh, that's wonderful. Maybe you've heard it before, but taking a moment to to realize other people may be exposed to this. What a wonderful thing. You see what I mean? Uh, Rumi says, whoever enters the way without a guide will take a hundred years to travel a two-day journey how important guidance is, teachings are. Uh, and then we might just consider what teachers themselves have given up to be teachers. Just at the worldly level, uh, they often have made a tremendous worldly sacrifice in terms of comfort, and even in terms of their lives. I mean, you think of Jesus and martyrs who have given up their lives in order to teach, in order to communicate this. Most spiritual communities at one point or another have suffered persecution and martyrdom to preserve these teachings, these practices so that you here today now have the benefit from them. They suffer tremendous hardships for that. Then you might consider what spiritual teachers give up in a spiritual sense. And this is more subtle and perhaps harder to recognize. But in every tradition there are stories that exemplify this. The Bodhisattva for instance gives up nirvana in order to come back and teach and liberate all sentient beings. Now, this is a renunciation of absolute bliss. I mean, it's like you get there, nirvana opens to you, you look in, you say, oh, that's great. I'll go back and get everybody else and bring them up here. This is a mythic kind of story, but it's communicating a a tremendously profound and important truth. Uh, The same thing you find in other traditions. In India, gods incarnate like Krishna when times are bad. They come and they take on this human birth to teach, you know. And they have to come down here and get their hands all dirty with people. You know, Krishna becomes a charioteer driving chariots for Arjuna so he can deliver the Bhagavad Gita. You know, to drive a chariot for God is kind of menial. Uh, and, you know, this is the whole Christian story, isn't it? God incarnates as Jesus becomes a human being to suffer and die in order to bring us these teachings. This is an ancient mythic theme here. It runs through all the religions, and it's speaking to this. And i tell you from my own experience, it is true. Now, I don't expect you to be thankful or grateful for me, because ultimately I have no choice in this, so I didn't do anything that you should be thankful or grateful for. But it is true. There is a tremendous sacrifice, a spiritual sacrifice, for any realized teacher who starts to teach. And it's it's something that we don't normally appreciate, and most teachers don't ask for. But it's something to consider. It really is. Um, So here we have the time, the education, the resources, and a host of teachers to choose from in this culture. And you can either just take it all for granted and accept it and be complacent about it, or you can realize that being born into this particular time, in this particular culture, where all these teachings are coming together, is uh, unprecedented in terms of spiritual richness. And you can be grateful, and that will uh, motivate you to take advantage. So, those are the kinds of things that you can consider about your existence. Where you find yourself right now, and the the difference between attitude. The self-centered, possessive attitude about your body, about things, uh, about teachings and teachers and practices and so forth. And if you watch it, you will see how this itself generates the suffering. If you start to probe into it and you recognize the actual reality in terms of the whole human family, and you really consider that, really make that a part of your experience, that will just transform your experience. You will start to be grateful every time you open the refrigerator. I'm serious. You'll be grateful every time you get in your car, every time you walk in your house and turn on the heat. If you want to help yourself, you might pick some little uh, memory device to use during the day. A little prayer of gratitude. I don't know, start with four or five things in your life that you do every day. Like every time you get in your car, you might say that. Those little prayers, what they do is bring awareness into our lives. That's their whole purpose. It's just a little function of bringing awareness into your life. So that's one thing you could do, for instance, if you wanted to really make this concrete, this practice. Uh, You can take a chapter from the Senecas, you know, who are constantly giving thanksgiving, giving thanksgiving. They catch a fish, they give thanksgiving, you know. They kill a deer, they give thanksgiving for everything. So that's the function of prayer from a mystical point of view. It's not to bring down the goodies, but it's to remind you, remind you. Yes.
0: The best mnemonic device I've found is suffering. (laughs)
1: We're going right there. (laughs) So far, we've been talking about something that's pretty obvious. You have to be really deluded if you can't respond to uh, a gift, a free gift, with gratitude. Uh, I mean, you have to uh, become aware that it's a free gift, but most people, once they realize they're being a free gift, they naturally respond with gratitude. So the practice is very simple. It's just to become aware of the truth of your situation, the reality, and then the gratitude will flow. But... Truly radical transformation starts to happen in your life when you learn to be grateful even for your suffering and adversity, not just for your blessings. And this is what marks really the the turning point from, as I said earlier, the stage of purification to the stage of illumination that you begin to learn that it's not only all these blessings you should be grateful for, but even the adversity and the suffering. That suffering is the greatest guru. And first of all, we can see this in terms of, it's. we might say, its cosmological function. Suffering is what motivates you to go on a spiritual path. If you did not suffer, you would not be motivated to go on a spiritual path. The Hindu gods live this wild life in the in the uh, god realms, drinking ambrosia and, you know, hanky-panky and doing all these things. And in Hindu tradition, they cannot become liberated. Uh, they have to take a human birth to become liberated. And again, this is a mythic story that, that uh, tells a very profound truth. The reason they don't become liberated is because they don't have any suffering and there's nothing that motivates them to look into reality. But this is key in all traditions, that suffering has a positive aspect in the sense it's what motivates us. Uh, very often, you can see this just at a very physical level, people who are born into very wealthy families, who have been totally spoiled, have very little motivation to do anything worthwhile at all in life. You know, That's not always true, but it's often true. And often families who have a lot of money, if they're wise, they make it tough on their kids. They don't spoil them give them everything they want. You know what I mean? So that they will have some sense of the value of what they have and some motivation and, and whatnot. It's just at that level. And then very specifically, we can look at things like when you get sick, ill, a cold, or whatever. Sickness teaches us about the impermanence of the body. That's what it's showing us. It's reminding us, ooh, this body's impermanent. Ooh, this is a precious human birth, a precious lifetime. Don't waste it. Don't squander it. You see? Ding, ding, ding. Ringing the bell, you know? So when you get sick, if you look at it as something annoying and to, to, to get over with and to bury under a lot of cold medicines and so forth, uh, you're missing something here. You're missing what sickness has to teach you. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't uh, take medicines when you get sick. This isn't a question of uh, some sort of martyrdom or endurance test, but it's a question of attitude. It's a question of uh, being with that illness and taking that as a teacher. What is this teaching me? Life's short. Body's impermanent. Time is precious. Adverse situations. Come up in your life. You get fired from your job. Uh, your dog dies. Uh, wife or husband leaves you. You break up with your girlfriend. All these sorts of things from major ones to, to minor ones teach us not to rely on the world for permanent happiness. The world's impermanent. And whenever we rely on any particular situation, thing, form to give us happiness and we start to look to that to give us happiness, we are bound to suffer. The world, seen rightly, is the lila of God, the play of God, the dance of God. It is incredibly beautiful. But there is no one thing in the world, no certain set of circumstances, situations that will ever make us happy. Your job can never ultimately make you happy. Your house can never ultimately make you happy. Your spouse can never ultimately make you happy. Your children can never ultimately make you happy. Your dog can't make you ultimately happy. And whenever we uh suffer from some change in situation where the situation becomes adverse, that is a teaching. We've formed an attachment here. That's why we're suffering. And so the world is saying, uh, impermanence, let go. Don't become attached. Don't cling. Sit back and enjoy the symphony, but don't try to stop the conductor at that particular note that you like, it'll ruin the whole (laughs) symphony. Enemies. No one teaches you compassion like enemies. This is why Jesus said, uh, don't just love your friends, everybody loves their friends, you know? I love you, you love me, you scratch my back, I scratch your back, we're great buddies. He says, what does it profit you to love your friends? Love your enemies. Because that's where you learn. That's where you learn, in that attempt to love your enemies. That's what teaches you. That's what gives you insight. That's what ultimately gives you compassion. Your enemies are your best teachers in Christianity and Buddhism. And you can find passages that are interchangeable about that. If you have an enemy, don't turn your back on that enemy. That is your most precious teacher. Take that person as a teacher. They'll teach you all sorts of virtues. They'll teach you patience. They'll teach you humility. They'll teach you all those things. They'll press all your buttons. They'll find all your attachments, all your selfish desires, and they will bring them all out in the light where you can see them. Nobody can teach you like an enemy can teach you. And then finally, the difficulties that we encounter on the path itself. The resistance that comes up and all these obstacles that we generate in relation to the practice. They themselves are teachers. They themselves uh, expose the deep layers of attachment and selfish desire that we have that generate our suffering. If you find yourself resistant to meditation, look into that. What's the core? What's the root of this resistance? There's some sort of self-centeredness at the root of that. Maybe some sort of fear. You look into it, and each person's a little different. But the spiritual path is designed to bring this stuff out. That's what it's supposed to do. It's supposed to be difficult. It's not supposed to be easy. A lot of people go on a spiritual path thinking immediately everything's going to change, everything's going to be nice. They go wanting relief from their suffering. That's perfectly legitimate motivation. I mean, everybody has that. I had that. It's almost impossible not to have that. And then they sometimes have nice experiences. Oh, they get calm. They get a little bliss. Oh, this is wonderful. Then they start running into difficulties, and they want to keep the nice experiences, and they want to just shove the difficulties under the rug or get over them or get away from them. It's when you begin to realize the difficulties on the spiritual path, that's where the real teaching happens. That's the heart of it. That's the meat of it. That's the root of it. Uh, then, when you can see that all these adverse circumstances, whether it's other people, whether it's some situation, whether it's just little sicknesses, the flu or whatever, and even the difficulties that you run into in your spiritual practice, when you see that they themselves are teachers, that automatically calls forth a response of gratitude. (laughs) And when this happens... When you start to be able to be grateful not only for your blessings, but also for the difficulties in your life, guess what? Now you start to transcend the duality between good and evil. You start to move beyond anything bad ever happening to you, because everything that happens to you is good. It's either a blessing for which you're grateful, or it's a teaching for which you're grateful. This is really what transcending good and bad is all about you move beyond your own slavery to your likes and dislikes what I like, what I don't like it's all good as God said you know, in the Judaic uh, Christian tradition, after he created the world, and he looked it all over and he says, Katova. that means it's good he didn't say, it's good except for those green beans there with a little, you know, mold on them that's not so good it's all good You see, they're often buried even in in very exoteric stories, very profound truths. You start to discover this is true about life. This is why I say that at this stage, when you can start to be grateful for your adversity, that's where real radical transformation starts to happen in your life. Now, I want to read you one example about a young woman who's more or less your contemporary. She died not you know, 40 years ago or so. And this is what she discovered after a short but very intense spiritual path. And I just want to read you uh, her expression of this gratitude. It's one of the most beautiful expressions of gratitude I know of. You have made me so rich, O God. Please let me share out your beauty with open hands. My life has become one uninterrupted dialogue with you, O God, one great dialogue. Sometimes when I stand in some corner of the camp, my feet planted on your earth, my eyes raised towards your heaven, tears sometimes run down my face, tears of deep emotion and gratitude. At night, too, when I lie in my bed and rest in you, O God, tears of gratitude run down my face. Excuse me for a minute because this is so beautiful. This woman is named um, Eddie Hillson. She was a Dutch Jew and she's writing this from a concentration camp. And she was killed in Auschwitz in 1943. Now think about that. This is what's possible. This is how powerful these virtues are if you really take them seriously and apply them in your life. So, you can see something of the power of this virtue, and you can see how it truly can bring about this sort of transformation that mystics talk about, that we read about, and then we say, oh, well, well, what about the Nazis, and what about all this horror and terror in the world? She bears witness to the fact that this transcends even that. Even that. So, it's very simple. What you have to do is take these teachings seriously. You have to take these little steps that I talked about earlier of being grateful for having a refrigerator full of food, of being grateful when you turn on the heat. You start with that. You start building that into your life. You start seeing your life in the, in a larger context. And what happens is this whole practice takes your attention off yourself. And that's what this path is all about, selflessness. And you start to see all your suffering comes when you are self-centered. All your self-pity comes from being wallowing in self-centeredness. When you take your attention off yourself, when you direct it out there at the world, at all this, the whole world changes for you, as it did for Eddie. It really does. Your immediate experience of life changes, not just your ideas, not just your mind, not just your worldview. But you have to go through the steps. You have to go through the little steps to get to where Eddie's at. So, are there any uh, questions or comments?
0: Yeah. What's coming to my mind when you're saying this is that all of this has appreciation. and We have gratitude for it when it supplements our spiritual path. But when we're just trying to survive as an ego and... and object referral and, you know, trying to get more, then it, it loses its meaning. Could you, you know what I'm trying to say? I think like, so. Uh, it, it has to do with um, <clears throat> process or goal orientation, I think. Like, when it's in a process of spiritual actualization, then we can be gratitude. We can have gratitude for it, but <coughs> when it's just amassing more objects, it has no meaning. It just has... It's just more stuff.
1: There's there's a, a kind of a mathematical ratio law in the world. It's quite simple. The more selfish you are, the more you suffer. The more selfless you are, the happier you are. It really works like that. And uh, it's something not to just take on faith. It's to discover in your life. And you can discover it by watching your life. And when you say, when the ego wants to possess things, there's a certain momentary superficial thrill when you get things. But you watch in your own experience very carefully. You watch how quickly that wears off. You see how shallow that is. Then you compare that to other experiences you have where you're doing something for someone you love, where there's a real deep sense of happiness that comes from giving. And in your own mind, it's very simple. You don't have to take any teacher's word for it. You you say, what's happier? And that's how you learn to be happy. Being selfless is not a commandment in the sense that God doesn't sit up there and say, you should be selfless, otherwise you're a rotten son of a bitch. Do you know what I mean? It's actually more selfish in a paradoxical way to be selfless. You are happier. And it's through your own experience, really, that the path progresses. Otherwise, you'll start to take all these teachings as big shoulds in the sky, you know. (laughs) You should be grateful, you ungrateful so-and-so, right? (sighs) But... It's when it's the spontaneous response because of your own insight. You see the truth of this. So you want to be selfless. You want to be giving. You want to be what Eddie says. Let me uh, uh, share out your beauty with open hands. She wants to. She's not doing it because uh, Big Daddy is looking over her shoulder, you know.
0: And the last thing I would, I would like to mm-hmm. comment on is, that in a sense, the capitalistic myth fosters egocentricity, which always then causes one to think and live in fear and protecting this ego. And so, in a sense, if we had more of a holistic myth based upon the, the unity of all beings, that, you know, you and I are not we but one, or there's this totality, we could live as this totality rather than as separate beings struggling to survive.
1: I think when you say myth, I would read that as a worldview. So, right. Okay. It, it,
0: it, it, capitalism isn't a myth. <laughs> it isn't. But no, no
1: I, mean, I, I'm, I would, just to use my terms, I would mm-hmm. say not capitalism no, so much it. as materialism, the yeah. worldview of materialism. <laughs> and I, I would just say that, yes, that's why I said earlier, we at the Center are very interested in developing a new worldview. Because one of the things, uh, the problems is, in a materialist worldview, people don't know any better. You're raised to think this is all there is. This is what we talked about earlier, about being grateful to be exposed to some teaching that starts to show you something else. Do you know what I mean? So I think worldviews are very helpful. A worldview that is more inclusive and that that acknowledges and recognizes greater dimensions to reality than just the material and also has built into it this arrow pointing to uh, a an um, end to suffering, a transcendence of self, is extremely valuable. But it's only an aid, it's only a tool. You still have to yourself walk the path. You still have to learn the lessons of the more selfish you are, the more you suffer, the more selfless you are, the more happiness you'll have. You have to do the practices, do you know what I mean? You have to remember the teachings, try to apply them in your life to see if they work, not because some teacher told you, but try it.
0: But that's the process rather than the goal. I mean, and that's where the process becomes the goal. In
1: a At a certain point, you realize that even the desire for nirvana, for moksha, for liberation, for enlightenment itself is, if it's a selfish desire to let me escape my suffering, it becomes the obstacle. So the, it, the whole path ends in a funny sort of paradox. As long as you want enlightenment, you can't have it. And the ultimate uh, irony is uh, if you, the minute you let go of that, bingo. Thank
0: you.
1: Yeah.
0: I, I would feel I'm concerned that if I were to cultivate gratitude for certain types of adversity, like say sexism, uh-huh. that I would just be setting myself up to be further victimized by the by the adversity. What do you What do you think about that?
1: I've heard people express that before. Why don't you tell me more what you mean by it? Because I really don't... Does it mean
0: we surrender to it? I mean, if I'm walking down the street and someone comes after me, wants to rape me, do I just say, thank you for this experience and let them do it?
1: Well, no, I would put it this way. First of all, if, you, if there's any way to avoid being <laughs> raped, you try to avoid being raped, you know? Mm-hmm. There's a wonderful little Hindu story about this. A uh, Students with his guru, and the guru's teaching everything's God all this is god and you're god and so the student says oh that's great and so he starts off and he leaves his guru he's going back to his village and he's enjoying the fact that he's god and he's really feeling it you know and the, and then here comes this mad elephant charging up the path and the of riding him has, has lost control and he says get out of the way get out of the way this is a mad elephant and the student says well i'm god i mean what can happen you know and the mahout's saying, get out of the way, you fool! Get out of the way! And he doesn't get out of the way, and the elephant picks him up with his trunk and bashes him around. And the poor, bruised, broken disciple drags himself back to his teacher and he says, I don't understand. You told me I was God. I believed you. And he tells the master what happened. And the teacher looks at him and he said, well, yes, it's true everything's God. He says, that mahout was God too. Why didn't you listen to him? <laughs> so, let's put it this way. Let's say it's a situation where you have employed all your skillful means Mm -hmm. not to get raped. And by the way, Mm -hmm. if you're really uh, going to turn this completely into a spiritual situation, you don't want to get raped not just for your sake, Mm -hmm. but because that The actions of those people are going to cause them tremendous suffering in the future. Do you see what I mean? So it's a mutual reason you don't want to get raped here. But let's say there's nothing else you can do about it. I mean, you've you've exhausted all skillful means, and there you go ahead and get raped. Now, what's your attitude going to be? At that point, then it's accepting. This is happening to me. This is your teacher. It's a very powerful, strong teaching, but you will learn something from it. It can be a teacher for you. Uh, Lady Tsoygel, who was a great uh, teacher of Tibet, uh, was raped by five bandits, and she uses this opportunity to teach them. I mean, it's a, it's a mythic sort of story, but the import of the story is, yes, even being raped can be a teacher. Look, if Eddie Hillison can take the Nazis, as mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, but she had no choice. I mean, in
0: general, oh, no. I mean, she, in terms of she couldn't get out of the, out of the
1: concentration uh, 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 She actually volunteered to go. She was quite sophisticated, wealthy, or not so much wealthy, but had wealthy friends. And when the Nazis were closing in, they all urged her to leave, to get out. They would get her out of the country. And she chose to go to the concentration camps. And she writes about that, too. She says, all the people who are running, they are what are they saving? They're saving their fear and their guilt and their possessiveness. I don't want to save that. I want to go with my people. So she actually volunteered, and she worked in the infirmary while they let her until I finally just, you know... Acceptance, I said this last time we talked about virtues, acceptance is not resignation. They're two very, very different things. When mystics talk about accepting reality, they're talking about the only reality is, truly is, is this moment, this very moment. This very moment, this form is arising in your consciousness. See? That's what's going on right now. And there's a a very subtle psychological thing that you can see actually happening. If you don't like this form, there's a little uh, push, a little turning away. If you happen to like it, there's a little grasping, wanting to hold on. And both of those are not acceptance. Both of those are moving beyond acceptance to either pushing away or grasping. Now, in every moment, this is happening. But in the absolute now, this form is here. It's too late. The rape is happening, let's say. So acceptance is accepting this moment and always acting in relation to the reality that's going on. That reality is always shifting. It's not a static reality. Resignation is, I don't want to do this dance anymore. I'm tired of this life. Do you know what I mean? Do whatever you want with me. It starts to border on despair. In the beginning of the Bhagavad Gita, Arjuna is faced with fighting this civil war, a just war. And the two armies are lined up, and he looks across the battlefield, and he sees on the other side his friends, his relatives, people he's grown up with all his life. And in despair, he throws down his weapons, and he says, I'm not going to fight this war. Because even if we win, I mean, you're killing all your friends and relatives. I mean, you know, it's it's just too awful. I can't do it. That's resignation. That's Resignation. And Krishna comes along and says, What's the matter with you? You're a soldier. Gird up your loins like a man. You gotta fight this war. This is the, one of the great uh, mystical classics of all times. So that's how it begins. You gotta fight. But then he teaches him how to fight selflessly, how to live his whole life selflessly. And that's the path. That's taking everyday life as the path. Be a good book for you to read, actually. Yes. All right, let's bring the formal part of the morning to a close. You're welcome to stay and have tea and uh, check out the library. And until uh, we meet again, peace to you all.